Certainly, this is Tim Owings. I'll, I'll be the first speaker and be followed by Rob Sova, then Lieutenant Colonel Jennifer Jensen, and then Viva Austin. Uh, I'm going to talk to you just a little bit about some programmatic uh, changes, if you will, that are coming uh, down the, uh, uh, the pipe for us in terms of, of new capabilities and, and uh, milestones for our programs. Starting with the large, largest program that we manage, the Gray Eagle program, uh, we are set for an LRIP2 uh, DAB on 22 February. Uh, that DAB will be to support the procurement of two additional Gray Eagle companies, which consist of 12 aircraft and five ground control stations each. We will also be asking for procurement of five additional attrition aircraft at that time uh, as part of that, uh, that decision. In addition, we will be requesting authorization for the configuration change that was briefed to the Army's Configuration Steering Board, uh, in which we, we essentially uh, uh, add some small components of hardware that allow us to divide the Gray Eagle company into three platoon-sized sets. That gives us some flexibility in terms of keeping more of the fleet forward and keeping a smaller segment uh, in, the, in the rear for, for training operations. Uh, Gray Eagle, the QRCs continue uh, to do quite well with over 8,000 flight hours. Uh, Colonel Sobo will talk a little bit more about that uh, when he speaks. Uh, uh, additionally, with, additionally, with regard to Gray Eagle, there, there are budget movements afoot that, that, uh, that look like they will take place in FY12 to further accelerate the Gray Eagle program from two companies per year that we were previously accelerated to, to three companies per year starting with FY12. The net result to that is that we will uh, be out of production on the at least currently planned procurement for Gray Eagle in FY14, uh, and that would be 17 company sets of equipment. In addition, the same uh, budget mem memorandum talks in terms of vertical takeoff and landing capability. Secretary Gates recently uh, spoke of this in, in, in his speech uh, in terms of what the budgetary impacts that were flowing down to the programs were going to be. What we expect to happen is we are currently funded to fill three A-160s, the first of which would, would go into theater later this year, the, the other two in the early FY12, equipped with uh, FMV or, or video capability, SIGINT, and, and Argus uh, wide area surveillance capability. So, uh, so that, that program continues to, uh, to move forward uh, as, as well. Uh, just one additional uh, point in terms of, 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 or two additional points in terms of opening comments. Uh, the small UAS family, uh, we are pushing the family of systems forward. That is doing quite well in theater, the proof of principle. Uh, Colonel Sobel, when he speaks, can talk about the, uh, the status of the, of the requirements document there, but we're ready to move, to move forward with that. And then finally, what drives us always here at PMUAS is, is the architecture, ensuring that we're able to cookie cut in these new capabilities and make them immediately effective in the family of, of, of systems. Uh, when Colonel Jensen speaks, she will talk about that. And then the final piece is, is effectively training our operators, um, making sure that we have penetration into the national airspace, and, uh, and Ms. Austin will, will cover that piece. So with, with those opening comments, I'll turn it over to Colonel Sober. Colonel Rob Silva, uh, as mentioned, Trade Out Capabilities Manager, uh, which always leads to uh, twofold uh, that I state up front. Uh, work closely uh, with Tim and folks and Colonel Gonzalez as the acquisition arm, um, and we're the requirements folks and the users reps. So, uh, talk about a couple things that Tim uh, mentioned the QRC. Um, we
we have uh, essentially two uh, Gray Eagle QRCs, which is uh, equivalent to a platoon size or four aircraft and the uh, support equipment in uh, both locations, uh, Operation uh, New, uh, New Dawn and then of course in OEF. The, uh, and the QRC-1 that is in OEF, we just had a, a major milestone last week where we've flown that aircraft uh, fully up-armed with four Hellfires in, in a couple uh, um, flights that were uh, utilizing the armament and um, getting ready to um, to be able to employ that armament because when QRC went one went into theater, of course, it was quick react capable. It wasn't a full program of record, uh, and it wasn't armed at the time. We've sensed uh, in that program armed the aircraft, and we're doing the uh, necessary flights. And next week sh we should be uh, um, launching um, the Hellfires off the aircraft in, in a. Uh, just uh, to make sure that everything and all the systems are operating appropriately prior to doing missions. QRC-2 um, is Special Operations Force uh, um, assets. The uh, specific missions for them are, are classified, so I can't go into that, but it, um, as Tim alluded to, several uh, hundred hours operating uh, successfully in Afghanistan um, and uh, Operations are going well there. The uh, small UAS proof of principle, I'll talk to the requirements document that uh, was mentioned. The requirements document for that, we've had several studies on the proof of principle for a family of smalls. Right now, our only program of record is the Raven. Uh, our proof of principle will go to a, um, a small um, system, less than uh, two pounds, about the one pound size, the Raven uh, size element, and then a Puma size, which is about a 13 pound. They, um, I mention these aircraft in name only because those are systems that we're using for the principal. Uh, the requirement that we've got approval for increased number of small UAS uh, in the requirements document that's already approved and in the system we're increasing that number and look to sometime within the next calendar year to have a um, uh, if you will a analysis of alternatives and look at the technologies that are out there to uh, replace those systems um, with either uh, similar aircraft or, or new technology aircraft so we'll uh, we'll continue work towards that um, and then the uh, the last uh, point I want to make it before I turn it over is the discussion we are uh, anxious, anxiously awaiting there's uh, the the RMD that will come out and talk to the requirement um, now we've got operational tests going on as Tim mentioned about a 160 you've heard discussions of LEMV uh, the Army, as of right now, does not have a requirements document for VTOL uh, aircraft. However, um, we we certainly believe, and there's been announcements here recently uh, in the press about that requirement. Uh, as soon as the uh, document is officially released, um, uh, I've already given the uh, the warning order to our office that we'll be writing uh, a capabilities development document for the uh, VTOL requirement. No specific material solution, but we will be writing a, um, a requirements document for that capability. Um, and I won't talk specifically about the OSRVT because I'll, Lieutenant Colonel Jennifer Jensen will cover that topic. Hi, how are you doing? I'm uh, Lieutenant Colonel Jennifer Jensen. 
I'm just going to talk briefly about an upcoming demo that we have. Uh, as you know, the Army's been dedicated for several years in making our systems as in interoperable as possible, and we've always been seen as the leader of that. So what we're going to do is we're going to leverage off the uh, one system remote video terminal that we started fielding in 2007 and expand that uh, capability to the manned aircraft uh, because we put that technology into the Apache and the uh, OH-58 and also the Command and Control Blackhawk. But what we're going to do uh, on the September 16th, it's out at uh, Dugway Proving Grounds out in Utah. We're going to demonstrate all these capabilities and go a little bit farther. We're going to uh, we have a new universal ground control station that will be fielding this next year with the Shadow, but we're going to demonstrate the Shadow, the Hunter, and the Gray Eagle being flown from this same universal ground control station. Uh, along with that, we're going to uh, demonstrate the control of from that one system remote video terminal, or we call it the OSRVT, controlling the sensors uh, from a couple of our platforms, um, their payloads. And that's the first time that we've ever done that uh, for an, an audience in, in real life, not just in the simulation environment. We're also going to be highlighting having those Apaches will be out there with the 58s, and the OH-58 is going to also uh, do some other operations, relays with our unmanned systems, and uh, potentially even fire uh, weapons. Uh, from those, so we'll have that. And lastly, we're going to demonstrate our small aircraft uh, family, the Raven and the uh, Puma, and being flown from a single controller. So we're very excited about this demonstration. We'll be putting uh, more information out this coming spring uh, with uh, more details about this. Hi, um, Viva Austin. I'm the product director for uh, USAIC, which is Unmanned Systems Airspace Integration Concepts. Uh, Basically, what we're trying to do, as Mr. Owings talked about, is expand access to the national airspace, well, to any airspace for unmanned systems. And right now, our main solution, or our main product is a material solution that's ground-based and a void. And uh, so what we're trying to do with that is sort of answer some of the regulations that unmanned systems currently don't meet. And the main one is to see in the void in the national air to be able to fly in the national airspace. And the way we do that is with putting sensors on the ground that allow us to, at least in the near term, transition to special use airspace like restricted areas or military controlled areas. So that we're not just initially trying to go out and fly wherever we want to, but we're trying to transition from either a restricted airspace or from um, a military-controlled airspace into another one. And then we'll grow our, our expansion from there. I don't have a lot of new to report, but I can tell you why. Uh, we have a lot of people that we have to answer to when we're coordinating this. Uh, most of you know the FAA approved our COA in August which is the first sense and avoid COA that's been approved, and um, it's a pretty significant step forward for us, but we haven't yet flown under it. And the reason for that is because there were some pretty strict data collection requirements that were levied on us, and we've been working through those. We have gotten to come to an agreement on what those data collection requirements will be, and we pulled them out of a, out of a COA and put them into a memorandum of agreement, which the FAA agreed on. However, we're working closely with them now on exactly what that language looks like. And um, any of you that have dealt with this, this sort of politics in this um, understand that there's a lot of coordination that has to go on. Not only do, as PMUAS, do we have to coordinate up with uh, Big Army, but we have to coordinate with the FAA, get an agreement on that. And then we have to coordinate with the Secretary of Defense's um, UAS task force. 
And the reason for that is because this is the first time it's been done, we want to make sure that we don't put any requirements on the Navy or the Air Force when they try to move forward and do this. So it's a significant amount of coordination, and every uh, T has to be crossed and I has to be dotted, and, and we just have to make sure that everybody agrees with it. And that's really where we are. We still anticipate flying in February. However, you know, it is what it is. We have to make sure everybody's happy with the language before we can move forward. Okay, with that, uh, back to you, Mark. So thank you all very much for your opening statements. We're going to do a first round of questioning. We'll start with uh, Lawrence from Federal News. Do you have any questions? Okay. Uh, Lawrence, if you're not still on the line, we'll catch back up with you later. How about Mr. Simmons? Yes. Um, given uh, all of the things that are going on in the modern battlefield, uh, how do you go about training your uh, operators uh, in airspace deconflection um, so that your vehicles don't uh, interdict uh, an A-10 or a, a, a helicopter uh, during their activities? How, how do you go about training them uh, in, for field operations? This, this is Colonel Rob Silva. The, the, um, well, first off, Every single one of our Army UAS operators is, tra uh, is trained, uh, other than our small uh, systems, which is trained at Fort Benning and also uh, at various locations. But uh, our predominant uh, shadow size and above, all those operators are trained at Fort, Rock, uh, Fort Huachuca, uh, UAS Training Battalion. And the training, the ground school that they go through, as well as the uh, simulation training and then uh, actual training of the devices, um, they go through... Uh, FAA certified um, ground school training for the same thing that a manned pilot would go through. They go through. They they do not get certified as pilot, but they go through the same training that uh, that we instruct. So they're aware. Their air sense. Uh, when you talk to uh, from the standpoint of how do we deconflict? Well, they're aware of. The, the process, and then of course our air traffic services, our air traffic control are the ones that uh, are responsible for maintaining separation where we operate it in safe zones or restricted operating zones, etc. So, so the operator gets the knowledge of what is required to operate in the airspace they've been allocated to operate in, and then through the systems that are part of the hardware, uh, giving the information to the operator of where they're operating, um, that's that's how we do that from a, both a, a procedural and a positive control aspect. Okay, thank you. Thank you, uh, Mr. Ackerman. Thank you. Um, a few uh, clarifying questions. Uh, first, Colonel Owens, could you talk about just how important the Gray Eagle will be to the Army in the future? Um, are you looking at uh, this much larger and, 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 and much more uh, armed platform as, as uh, the, the kind of crown jewel in the Army UAS fleet? Um, and also, um, could you clarify whether that uh, Hellfire test out in New Dawn is actually going to be done in Iraq to utilize the armament? And I wasn't sure um, if, uh, if uh, Colonel Soba, you said that uh, ultimately you guys are going to phase out the existing uh, small UASs that you've got the Raven and the Puma. I, I just wasn't really sure on that. Thanks very much. 
Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll start off uh, first. I haven't uh, joined the army yet, so it's not. It's uh, just uh, Tim Owings, not, not Colonel uh, Tim Owings. But um, okay, sorry about that. It's okay. I, I think they have tried to draft me a couple times. So. <laughs> uh, um, uh, yeah, just uh, talking about the Gray Eagle. Gray Eagle really is the ultimate enabler for what we're trying to do because <laughs> with the shadow class of systems at Brigade and the smaller class at, at Battalion and below and uh, that uh, they're all queued sensors, and so you need you need to have a way to queue those systems to the targets. So we we do that a variety of ways from from a variety of intel feeds. But what the Gray Eagle is going to allow us to do is carry you know eventually wide area surveillance sensors, a wider array of payloads, and you know, including SIGINT cap, um, capabilities, and really becomes a, a you know a top level queuing um, platform for us. It also becomes the network enabler in order for us to, to increase dissemination, not just from Gray Eagle, but from our other stuff, because you can pass information through Gray Eagle to, to, to the ground uh, and, and things of that nature. So from that perspective, it is, it is super important. Now, on the testing of, of the Hellfires, no, we're not testing in Iraq. All, all the testing was done stateside. However, since we didn't integrate the missiles prior to them going to uh, deploying to Iraq, they will do some safety checkout flights and safety fan checks and things of that nature in theater. But the testing was all completed here at, uh, at China Lake. Uh, and then I'll let Rob clarify his other comment. Yeah, the, um, so I think that answers the, the hellfire. If, if I alluded to any testing, they, um, I think uh, Tim just clarified that. No, we're just, we're actually, there's a, an operational area where we'll fire uh, the actual hellfires off the platform but, um, uh, in, in Iraq. The uh, comment if, uh, on the smalls, no, I, uh, actually, uh, much to the converse, uh, we're certainly not looking at divesting any small UAS whatsoever. Our current program of record, of course, is Raven. We also have Puma Systems, although it's not a pr uh, program of record. We just uh, delivered uh, over 47 uh, air vehicles to, uh, to theater, and, and we'll increase that number. Uh, and then we also have a small in the form of uh, WASP. Those three air vehicles I just mentioned happen to be made by AeroVironment um, out of uh, California. What what I was mentioning is our CPD for small UAS uh, they, is approved, and it talks to a family of smalls in that same category that are those particular systems that I just mentioned. As we move forward and look at the latest technologies that are out there, if we may go with those systems or there may be other systems that will compete with them. And what that does is that gives that small unit commander a toolkit capability. Uh, so if he doesn't need the three hours of endurance that the Puma-like system gives, then he can use the WASP that will give 45 minutes to an hour uh, for for the situational awareness. So hopefully that clarifies um, that the small UAS. Uh, when uh, will those be shielded? The the fielding uh, again, we have to go through the process as far as a uh, selection. I wouldn't say that the the increased numbers of small UAS systems fielding is ongoing now and will continue. Um, but as far as new systems, I would say that you're looking at new systems uh, po uh, potentially within the next couple couple of calendar years. Yeah, now, the, now the proof of principal systems are in theater today. Right. Thank you. Great, thank you. Uh, Mr. Ledbetter, do you have any yes. questions? Yes, um, thank you for taking my question. Um, I was wondering if, 
any information, more information is available on upcoming milestones for the initiative to expand access to airspace for unmanned? Um, well, what I can tell you right now is that um, for the Army, at least, they, we are um, currently have a proof of concept at El Mirage, California. That's where we will fly first. And what we what we're currently doing is removing ourselves from the airspace if something enters a certain volume. I can I mean there's a it would take me a while to explain all of it to you, but um, we expect to be tunneling over into Edwards Air Force Base this summer sometime, and that would be under the same concept. We would do it in the airspace, not underground. But um, but just flying, taking off from El Mirage and flying over to Edwards Air Force Base while we're watching um, incoming traffic. The next milestone for that would be we would feel that system, be able to feel that system to where the um, Gray Eagle sites will be, at least initially, where they'll be training on those. And then we'll expand that capability. We plan to do some testing out at Dugway, and in the next two years, we, we will expand that capability to where we're not removing ourselves from the airspace. We could stay in the airspace with other aircraft. Yeah, yeah and, I, and I want to add on to that, because uh, uh, when uh, Colonel Jensen spoke about the music demonstration, it really meshes in with what we've done at Dugway and what, with what, uh, what Viva was just talking about. We've located all of our flight test assets at Dugway now. So what that does is it creates an ultimate environment for us to test and integrate systems at a much more uh, rapid rate, but, but perhaps in some ways more importantly, it becomes the ultimate test bed for airspace deconfliction. Flying in a pattern with manned traffic, uh, you know, we'll do that in music with helicopters and, and, and other things flying around, and then it will become the test bed for VIVA's program, GBSAA. Um, we're working with, I believe it's MIT Lincoln Labs, that are, that are, that are basically building the infrastructure for us out at at Dugway so that we collect the data every day and can provide that information to the FAA. So, so, so it really does mesh together. Thank you. And, and who was the last speaker? Just to make sure. Uh, that was Tim Owens. Okay. Thank you. Hey, thank you. Uh, Mr. Doyle, do you have any questions? Uh, yes. Hi. This is John Doyle with the 4G War Blog. Uh, thanks so much for talking to us today. I wanted to know if... Uh, what, if any, work the Army is doing uh, with the other services, either on platforms uh, like the Shadow or, uh, or some of the smaller ones, and uh, also any uh, joint work you may be doing on the uh, intero interoperability of control systems like uh, Lieutenant Colonel Jensen mentioned? Yeah, I, absolutely. In fact, it's a, it's, a, it's a very good question because it's one I think gets overlooked too often in this discussion of you know, uh, of of uh, joint service uh, cooperation. Uh, if you think about uh, uh, the battlefield being broken up into, into basically three echelons of, of, of tactical, operational, and strategic, uh, at the operational level, there's really no debate. Um, uh, that's the smaller system shadow and below. At the strategic level, you know, Reaper level, there's really no debate. The Air Force basically dominates that mission. Uh, there is some debate at the operational level um, because the Army and the Air Force uh, um, uh, cross paths in that, in that operational arena. But but I, I think a good news story of cooperation between particularly the Army, the Navy, and the Marine Corps gets gets overlooked. Uh, today, uh, the shadow system is used jointly uh, by not only the Army, but Special Operations Forces, uh, United States Marines, uh, and, and the Navy has used some of those systems as well. Uh, the same story with the Raven program. Uh, the Marines have, have, have used the program uh, um, you know, quite efficiently, in fact, and, and so have the uh, Special Operations Forces. 
the OSRVT remote video terminal has also uh, been used by, by, by multiple services. So at that ground fighting component, uh, just to use that terminology, uh, there is tremendous cooperation, and we're working some things today uh, to even enhance that cooperation. We have a um, Marines that sit with me in my, in my office every day to help make sure that we're t that we're jointly considering requirements between those two services. So, uh, you know, the, uh, that's a very good question, and I'll let uh, Lieutenant Colonel Jensen answer the question concerning uh, uh, joint cooperation and interoperability. Okay. Um, yeah, we are working considerable uh, amount of efforts on the joint interoperability stage. Uh, we're actually working. The Army's been the lead for the past couple of years to uh, redesign the architectures. And so we will, uh, in the next few years, be able to actually share applications across the services. Uh, so, so we're heavily working on that. That should be coming out in the next year. Uh, along with that, we've developed interoperability profiles to actually help define the standards that we build all of our systems to. Because what's really most important is not that we build the same system since we have different requirements, that we have the ability to access and share the information coming from those systems. And so that's been very important, and uh, we've had great industry cooperation uh, to help us do that. All of our industry um, ones that help us design these profiles, so it's not just us dictating, and we've collaboratively uh, come up with uh, these standards uh, that we're, we're implementing. Is there anything specific other than that that you're looking for? Um, no, mainly just... Um you know, is there are there efforts for an interoperability standard across the services? Uh, yes, there is. I mean, in fact, that's being worked for. Uh, you know, with it, both at the ground control station level, there has been a protocol standard, uh, a State Act 4586, for some time, and then we're and now the Army has developed a comms a comms layer or data link strategy. We're encouraging uh, the department that we need to do a, a comms layer strategy. Uh, for the unmanned systems across the board too, but but yes, there is there's a lot of cooperation in that area to make that happen. Right, and we all build our systems to those standards that Tim was talking about, and there's a Motion Energy Standards Board that we also build our systems to what they we comply with that as well. And so, by the help of having those types of um, forums and uh, us, helps us make us interoperable as well. Thanks. And just to clarify, that was Mr. Owings speaking before you, Colonel Jensen. Yeah, that, that's correct. Okay, thank you. Okay, thank you. I understand we may have had a few individuals calling a bit late. Uh, if there are any questions, go ahead and introduce yourself and uh, ask our panelists a question. Hi, my name is Rob McElveen with Army News Service. And I was just wondering if I could get some photos of these aircraft you're talking about. This is the first time I ever sat in on a, uh, an interview of this type, and, I, and I'm very unfamiliar with what you've been talking about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Certainly, we can get you photos to, to all of this. And is there any package as well? And any background information that would bring me up to speed? Sure. Um, can I get one of your emails or give you mine or? Yes, you can. Uh, you can email me. This is uh, Marty Shelton, but you can email me at Lawrence L A W R E N C E dot Shelton at P-E-O Aviation. I'm sorry. Let me back up. <laughs> Lawrence.Shelton at U-S.Army.Mil. Ah, uh, okay. And it's S-H-E-L-T-O-N, right? Okay. 
Correct. Um, what is what is music demonstration? I that made me go, huh? When I saw the thing. Yeah, uh, music stands for manned unmanned uh, systems integration capability, and and what what it basically is is a showcase event to show complete. Uh, and seamless interoperability between manned unmanned manned ass- assets, unmanned assets, and soldiers on the ground. So, in effect, what you're going to have is a, is a universal uh, operator being able to fly, whether it's a, a, a mid a mid range shadow system, a larger gray eagle system, a hunter system, be able to switch back and forth between those, or hand off control of that UAS to an Apache operator. Have the Apache either, you know, use that that vehicle to laze for him, or or um, or, or something of, of, of that nature. But for the Apache operator to be able to see the image and control the aircraft from the cockpit of the Apache, you're going to have a, a, something called a bidirectional RVT, which basically allows a soldier on the ground a handset that he can have limited control over these systems too. So that he, so for example, if he's if he's in a Involved in an IED event, and he and, and he wants immediate situational awareness. He'll have a point at me fe- um, feature, you know, basically an emergency feature. That as soon as he, that when he clicks the button, the payload automatically slews uh, to, uh, to put him in the center uh, uh, of the image, and so he has immediate situational awareness. Um, uh, you'll have a universal hand controller uh, for the small UAS class that demonstrates, you know, cross functionality there. So, in effect, what you're showing is that the uh, that the, that the whole is really greater than the sum of the parts, and, uh-huh. and, and that by integrating all this stuff seamlessly together and sharing the information, um, you really enable a, a, a game-changing activity on the battlefield. And that's what we've already seen with the early fieldings we've done, and this will be the showcase of the, of the full suite of capabilities. The, the, and you mentioned uh, different um, aircraft, the Shadow, the Hunter, the Gray Eagle, the Raven, the Puma, right. and Wasps. Right. Uh, that's like a visit to the zoo, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. The uh, first three, Shadow Hunter and Gray Eagle, all have a longer operational time. Yeah. If you, just just going down the list, Gray Eagle is is twenty four plus hours uh-huh. in terms of endurance. Uh, Hunter uh, runs around fifteen hours. Uh, Shadows around seven to eight hours. Uh, Ravens are in the one hour you know type type of range. Uh, about uh, maybe a little bit less, and, and about twice that. Um, I believe are the current numbers for Puma, and then Wasp is in the, like the, the thirty minute range. It's just true, just up and and take a look around that kind of, kind of system. Very cool. Thank you very much. Okay. okay is there anybody else in line who didn't have the opportunity to ask uh, panelists a question? Okay. If not, are there any of the bloggers or the individuals on the call who would like to ask follow up questions, clarification questions? Uh, yeah, just real quickly, it's Spencer Ackerman from Wired. Um, when, what systems uh, will the universal hand controller control? Is that just from the smaller UAS, or, or will it be possible one point uh, from the cockpit of an Apache uh, to be able to control one of the larger programs, like the Hunter or the Gray Eagle? No, no, yeah, that, that's a good question, because it, because and, and, and we'll try to send out a chart that really clarifies that. Uh, one of the things we're trying to do with the small handheld controller from a com- Control perspective, um, it will control the you know the ravens, the wasp, and the, and the pumas, and the, the stuff below shadow. But we are implementing the capability 
for that controller to, to at least see the image, if not control the, the payload on the larger class of vehicles. Okay, so that's something we're doing and, and will be part, we hope, of the music, music demo, but, but, but we're still working through that. Now, when is the music demo and where is it? It's, it's, it's in Dugway Proving Ground, yeah. September 16th. It's near Salt Lake City. Right, kind of. right. So, so, so that's that's sort of part one. Um, break, break. Right. The, then the second piece to that is is command and control from from aircraft. Uh, uh, the Apache will have the capability to do what 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 we prefer, uh, refer to as limited command and control. He uh, he will be able to point the payload at what he wants to to see, and the and the vehicle will basically position itself in an airspace box that was pre coordinated to um, to allow that the. Uh, uh, the Apache to, to, to receive that image. So the Apache can control the payload um, right from his, his native payload controller. He can flip back and forth between the uh, uh, his, his MTAD sensor, which I forget what that stands for, but it's basically his native onboard uh, 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 sensor and the, uh, and the UAS sensor, and, and all of that will be possible to do too. And that, and that means the sensors from the Gray Eagle and the Hunter as well as the smaller class? Yes, yes. It, um, he he typically would not control something like a raven. He it would it would be shadowing above from Apache. But he can see. But he can see it right from the raven from any of the manned and other unmanned aircraft in its area. Right. He can see it now, or he will be able to see it. Uh, he can see it today. He can see it. Uh, see it. Um, he doesn't have any command and control capability today. But that, okay, that's so that's what you will, that's what you you look to add. And what's the timetable by which you you will be adding that command and control capability? It's happening right now. Um, uh, in fact, we're already doing, you know, simulated testing. Music will showcase it, uh, and then I believe the fieldings are. Is it next? Block three. Block three. Well, now, well, right. but, but, but year, year, right. it's the next year, though. Right. What, but we two what? years ago we put it out with the Apache Block Two in theater, where they have the capability to see all those uh, views from all those sensors already. Um, not just from the Army systems, they can see it from also the joint systems. I mean, they can get it from Predators and, and other uh, aircraft as well. So they've come a long way on uh, being interoperable with the other services in, yeah. for that, yeah. too. What, what, about fire, what about firing the missiles? Would that, would that remain with whomever? Not yet. That, that's something we're discussing. But today what we do is we, we, can, we can have what we call cooperative engagements where we lays or spot the target for the Apache, which allows him to keep have a higher standoff and increase his survivability. Organic. And, so, right. it, and this is Colonel Robsov. I want to, uh, to to muddy, hopefully not muddy the water anymore, or use that term, but it, hopefully clear up a, a couple things. It, if you look back uh, five to seven years, it, one of the things that this music demo that you've heard about is going to do, as is said, is is all this integration, all this interoperability, everything is now coming to fruition. This has always been a plan for the Army in the direction we want to go to have all this seamless integration. Um, and, and so I want to mention two things. One, when you talk about a universal ground control station, the, it, what that does for us from a training operator standpoint is when you have one ground control station that can operate just through flipping switches uh, and not new hardware, uh, downloading, uploading, uh, you know, rebooting, etc. It's just through switchology that a uh, universal operator can go from all these various systems that you heard mentioned. That's very significant, and, and that's the direction we're on. Also with what we're calling mini universal ground control station or mini uh, ground control, that will control not only the small UAS that you're hearing today that are in the system, but 
what our new systems are. So, if you, you know, that, that ground control becomes our center of gravity and, and the, the systems in it will allow us to continue to operate whatever new technology comes. Not only from an air platform standpoint, but we're working with our maneuver center of excellence, our infantry, and the intent is that same controller that operates our small UAS will also operate our small ground robotics. And that's, that is key, too, to show you we're not only doing it from an aviation standpoint, but we are working with our ground brethren, and uh, we have that capability and technology now, so that's, um, that's key as well. Yeah, I, I had a question. Okay. Um, how do you go about supporting the, especially the smaller UAV programs logistically in the field, uh, fuel, parts, things like that? Um, they're certainly operating in a much rougher environment than uh, the guys at Bagram, so how do you go about supporting them with, with logistics? That's it, that has proven to be a challenge, particularly the last tactical mile of some of these units. But the way we're way we've addressed it is we have, and, and obviously I can't get into locations, but we we have logistics support sites all across the theater that allow them to get parts relatively quickly. In the small class, we don't really give them a lot of parts per se, as much as just replacement stuff, and then we'll fix it. You know anything that's broken in, in in the rear. So from from that point, it's it's basically, you know, if you break an aircraft, check out a new one, and then they're back up and, and going. And, and then they don't really they don't use fuels per se since since in this class they're they're um, all battery powered. Uh, how how what's your largest battery powered platform then? Uh, the, the the Puma. And everything above that fueled, everything below that's battery. That's correct. Thank you. Okay, uh, everyone, thank you very much. I want to let you guys know we're running up on our time limit right now, so we're going to go ahead and wrap up. just want to say thank you, everyone, for your questions and comments today. We had a great call. Um, again, any follow-up questions can be directed to Mr. Shelton, who provided his email earlier. Uh, just a quick note that today's program will be available online at the bloggers link at dod.mil, where you will be able to access a story based on today's call, along with source documents, such as this audio file. So again, uh, we'll go ahead and disconnect here pretty soon, but I just want to thank all of our panelists and our blog participants.